afternoon. I'm Clara. I'm the other half of the Randy team. Okay, I stand over here. People have asked me why I stand over here. I stand over here so I don't block the wonderful PowerPoints that have been made for me. Because if I sit there, then it's in the way. So you'll get to see them. Okay, this afternoon we're going to consider um, a part of a verse, which I believe is the ultimate summary statement of the life of Apostle Paul. And if we were going to come to the Apostle Paul and ask him, Paul, what is the secret of your existence? What is the meaning of your life? What is your purpose statement? What are you all about? about? What would Paul the Apostle say? So I asked Paul to come tonight. Now, Paul... I want you to highlight for me the events of your life. Tell me a little bit about yourself and where you were raised. Well, uh, for starters, I was raised in Tarsus, what is now Turkey and uh, Asia Minor. Uh, Parents played a big part in my education, and uh, they really wanted me to become a rabbi. So they sent me off to Jerusalem to study under this rabbi, uh, Gamil. He was a really good teacher, and under him, I learned to really appreciate the Old Testament, and, you know, the traditions of my Jewish brothers. Mm-hmm. became very zealous. I, I practiced all of the law, considered a bright and promising student. One time, however, I was on my way to Damascus to uh, persecute some Christians because, as I mentioned at the time, I thought this was the best way to serve God. <laughs> on my way there, I was struck by a blinding light, and I heard voice of the Lord Jesus Christ and he said to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I will never forget that. It was um, truly Hmm. a powerful experience. I was literally struck blind for three days Hmm. until a man named uh, Aeneas came and laid hands on me. He prayed over me and my sight was restored. Hmm. Later, there was my apostolic career where I planted churches all over Rome. Uh, Hold that thought, Paul. This reminds me of our mission trip to Costa Rica last summer. Randy and I got the privilege to meet with um, one of the pastors of the La Vina church that we were working at. And while we were sitting having lunch together, I said, "Um, would you be willing to share with us some of your best Holy Spirit stories? And seeing that I was pretty excited and wanting to hear and really interested, he began to tell me uh, one of the stories that they had a, um, these two, there was this father, older single father who had gotten sick. And he had two daughters who had never married. And one of the daughters had run over to the church asking for one of the pastors to come pray for them. And this was the associate pastor. And so he said, okay. So he went back to pray for them pray for him and what he got there the people were mourning and what the sister failed to mention was that the father had actually died and had been dead for three days and the father was not a christian so this was really a very sad and grievous moment and so he was about ready to leave when he felt like the lord said would you at least try So that's what he did. He went over to where the father was laying, and he closed his eyes. He wasn't a vineyard person at that point. He closed his eyes, and he put his body over around him and began to pray. And suddenly, he was being choked by two arms that were saying, Thank you, thank you, thank you for bringing me back. 
And that man was not able to ever remember or talk about what happened to him in those three days. But he did become a Christian before he died a second time. Oh, yeah, Paul. Okay, Paul, back to you. Tell me your hottest story, Paul. Well, there was this one time I was preaching. It was a fairly long service, lasted off into the night. A young man was up in the upper story window and fell, head cracked on the hard stone floor. Everybody rushes over, but the fellow's dead. So I walk over, and I pray over him, and the Lord brings him back from the dead. Wow. This was, was a time cool. in Malta. We had this huge meeting. And every sick person we prayed for was healed. The blind saw, the deaf heard, the lame got up off their mats, the infirm were straightened. Everybody we prayed for was healed instantly. Hundreds of them. Then there were the prayer crusades through Ephesus, through Corinth. Uh, Paul, I, I have to... Okay, go on, keep going. There were also some uncool times. I was, <laughs> there was a time I thought I was going to die. I was so badly beaten by my mm -hmm. own Jewish community. Um, they kept throwing rocks, and there were so many times I had to crawl, literally crawl, out of the city, bruised, bloodied. It's time I started a riot in Ephesus, though I really didn't mean to. It just seemed to happen a lot of times. <laughs> then there were all the times I was shipwrecked, had nothing but a piece of driftwood to cling to to keep from drowning. Three times, three times. Well, well Paul, I don't know if you know this or not. But your writings have so impacted the world. In fact, it is the most read book in the world. And every year, year after year, the Bible is the book that's most read than any other book in the whole world. And I don't know if you ever heard of Tom Clancy, uh, Stephen King, Danielle Steele. Well, she's written about 40 or 50 trashy novels. <laughs> trashy novels, Stephen King. Did he replace Herod? Uh, no, nothing like that. <laughs> They're just a drop in the bucket. But really, altogether, compared to how many people have read your writings, and on top of that, how many people have written about your writings, dissertations, PhDs, books, volumes of books. I mean, whole forests of trees have been knocked down to write about your writings. <laughs> Magazine articles, everything. In fact, I don't know if you know this either. Well, I guess you wouldn't know about this. But Martin Luther started the Reformation. After writing, reading Romans and Galatians, he was so pegged that he broke away from the Catholic Church. Then in the 18th century, the Great Awakening, John Wesley, when he read Romans, the book you wrote to the Romans, it started a lot, a lot. It's a lot of ruckus for one guy to make. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now, Paul, as I look over history, your impact has greatly impacted the world, more so than any other man except for Jesus. Now, Paul, if you could reduce everything you've ever experienced, and everything you've ever seen, everything you've ever thought about, anything you've ever done, if you could just sandwich it into like a phrase like to put on a bumper sticker, what would it be? What's a bumper? Okay, forget the bumper sticker. If you could put in one little phrase everything you ever experienced or thought or believed, what would that one little phrase be? Well, that's easy for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Oh, gee, that's cool. Thanks, Paul. I'll take it from there. Well, that's, uh, that's what we're going to talk about tonight.
this afternoon. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for awesome men like Paul who followed your footsteps. And I thank you for awesome people like are in this room that also choose to follow in your footsteps. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with a teachable spirit where we need to be convicted, that we be convicted, where we need to be encouraged, that we be encouraged, where we need to be comforted, that we be comforted by your spirit. And that we would grow to be like you, Lord Jesus, in your full ways. Amen. Okay, boil down, if you were to squeeze out every molecule of excess and reduce the life of Paul into one little phrase, it would be this one. For me to live is Christ. The one thing, the one thing. Now, I don't know about anybody else in this room, but when I heard that statement and started to think about the one phrase in my life, I immediately began to feel a little convicted and sort of like a hypocrite. Because there's a lot of things going on in life that draw me from the meaning of life, from true satisfaction. Now, can anyone else here relate to me? You have some other dependencies, other obsessions, other games besides just Christ and Christ alone. But is that not our heart's cry as Christians? It is. For Christian, our heart cry is that Christ would be the one, the one, the only. I want to be there, although I'm not there yet. I know we're all not there yet, but we all want to be there. But we're caught in the tension, and we see how absolutely we fall short from that singular ambition, that singular motivation, that singular understanding of life. But that's where we want to go. One thing. Now, Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister named Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he had to say. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, You're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Now, anybody here can relate probably more to one sister over the other. I know which one I relate to better. Martha. (laughs) Literally, Martha's mind was divided. And this is the definition of anxiety, having a divided mind, divided Two directions, five directions, ten, fifty directions. Our focuses are on all different kinds of places. And we're unable to bring our mind together to one thing. On a more personal level, when we get up, our mind is at every moment starts going at 6,000 RPMs. There's a dozen items to do on our to-do list. And we proceed through the day, you know, all the things that we need to do, like a rabbit trail. And in the swirl of all the confusion and all the demands that we live with, that I live with, what is the one thing? Christ is the one thing. Now, somebody wrote a book a while ago that in it he says, Christ is the answer. What is your question? I thought that was cool. What is the bottom line answer to your parents' needs? Whatever your parents need, their fundamental need is more Christ. Whatever else your children need, 
their most basic need is Christ and more of Christ. And if you could bring anything to your neighbor that would be of help, do you understand that what you need to bring your neighbor is Christ and more of Christ? One thing is necessary, Christ. That mean boss, Christ. The Andre cashier, Christ. See, when Jesus, when Randy, excuse me, Randy, at times he's a lot like Jesus, so I get them mixed up. When Randy wrote our purpose statement, he wrote in the church's purpose statement, the reason why the Vineyard Church of San Antonio exists is to love God. Let's just pause there. Love God. Love God. Let's all say it together. Love God. And then from that platform, we can begin to love others by helping one another fulfill their destiny through the lifelong process of encountering God, experiencing friendship, embracing wholeness, and expanding community. We exist to love and encounter God and to live in the full implication of being a saved people by loving others, receiving, and giving. So if you get prayed here and get touched by God, we want you to go out and pray for someone else. And if you learn something about Christ, then we want you to go ahead and share what you learned about Christ with another family member or a friend or even an enemy. Take what you get and give it away. If someone is sick at work or at school, you say, hey, I wonder if I could pray for you. I'm a Christian and I believe God heals people. Praying for the sick is not just for community groups and after the Sunday service. We need to learn to take from here to the streets, to get here and to give away. Now I asked Joy um, to share a testimony. She's been on the 40-day prayer of fasting, and she's had some encounters with God uh, that I want her to share. Hi. Um, I ride the bus to work every day. I work downtown, and it's very expensive to park where I work. And so I, I chose to start riding the bus, saving us, you know, like $200 a month or something crazy like that. Um, but anyway, most of the time, I usually ignore the people around me because some people are normal and some people are very, very strange. And you don't always know which is the one that's sitting down next to you. So I usually read or listen to praise and worship music on my way there i'm often reading devotionals or my bible and then on the way home i'll often read something that i want to read and um it's actually been (laughs) that sounds horrible but i just like other than the bible i'm sorry (sighs) recreational it didn't come out right um but anyway so i was on my way home from the bus uh on the bus uh two weeks ago, I guess, and I was on the phone with Esther, and I get off the phone because this girl sits down in front of me on this bench right in front of me, and there's not a lot of space. There's less space than there is between you and the seat in front of you right now, and the backs are low, so if someone's sitting in front of you, you're very close to each other, and she sits down. She's about Melissa's height, so she crosses her legs up on the chair, and they fit there, and uh, then she pulls out this little tiny olive green Gideon Bible in the King James Version, and she starts reading, and she's in Matthew chapter 10. So the fact that this was a free Gideon Bible, it was a King James Version, it was really small, and it was in, she was reading Matthew chapter 10, all kind of led me to believe that maybe this was her first time ever reading the Bible, Um, or she's started reading it sometime recent past. And I'm sitting there getting it. I'm like, okay, Esther, I'm going to get off the phone now. 
and I'm just waiting like, Lord, here's an opportunity, but what do I do and how do I start? And I was reminded of the story in scripture where um, an apostle named Philip was uh, walking or running on this road and there was a carriage traveling next to him and there was a, a person from a completely other country that didn't know anything about Jesus riding in the carriage. He was a very prestigious person and he was this man was reading the scroll of the book of Isaiah and Philip runs up next to his carriage and he asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, no, I don't. So then Philip proceeds to get in the carriage with him and explain Isaiah, which is very prophetic about the life of Jesus, and then tell him about Jesus. So I thought I could use that phrase, you know, do you understand what you're reading? And then I thought, well, that might be insulting depending on who she is. And so I chose to say, do you like what you're reading? And she looked up and she smiled and she said, yes, I do. And so then I asked her, well, how long have you been reading the Bible? And she said, oh, a month or maybe two months. So I asked her, what made you start reading it? And she said that um, she had met this guy, and they were dating now, and he was a very strong Christian. And she said, he's been teaching me about the Bible, and he's been trying to get me to read it for myself. And so I'm really trying, she said she was really trying to get her life right with God. And I proceeded to ask her some more questions, and we talked um, a little more. I just asked her more about her life and her background, and she um, eventually said that she um, was pregnant. She's due in April. She was living on the streets doing drugs and prostitution. And um, anyway, I don't know, you know, as far, this, a friend of hers introduced her to this guy, and he spoke, I guess, at several youth um, in Catholic churches. He would speak to their youth. And he would go out on the streets sometimes and speak to, to young people who were out on the streets. And so I don't know what the, you know, the whole status of the relationship is and if that's all clean or not. But regardless, she's become a Christian through his influence and is now basically said, I'm just trying to get my life right from here forward. And she said she had another daughter who was a couple years old. And she paused and she said, but I messed up with her. And she didn't go any further. So I don't know that situation. Um, anyway, so I... When I started the conversation with her, let me backtrack just a minute, I had in my bag the New Living Translation in a mini version like she had, or a mini size like she had in my bag, and that's the one that I would read on the bus. And so as when I had initiated the conversation after asking her about what she was reading and everything, I handed her that one. And she looks at it like, you know, it looks different. What is it? And I said, it's still a Bible. It's just more modern language, and maybe you'll be able to understand it a little better. And she laughs, and she says, yeah. Uh, there's some words in here I really don't understand, <laughs> which is valid. I said, I, I don't read that one either. It kind of confuses me, but it's still the same Bible. It's just you'll understand it better. So I ended up um, inviting her to our home group, and I gave her my business card and my phone number. And I kind of doubt that she'll call me, but that's fine. You know, I, I, I did something way out of my comfort zone and was able to recognize that the moment was there. And um, she left, and as she got off the bus, she just said, thank you so much. I feel like you've given me a little more strength that I'm on the right track. And um, anyway, then the only other thing I want to say is that the last time I had a very significant encounter like this with someone who was not a Christian or, or you know, really witnessing to somebody going out, I guess you could call it, um, was a year ago when we were doing the fast. <laughs> And so part of me was, like, ashamed. Maybe, God, am I just missing opportunities the rest of the year? And then part of me was encouraged that the strength of this body of people, you know, doing the corporate prayer that we've been doing, doing the fasting that we're doing, and, 
and cleansing our hearts, that power of this whole body coming together can make an immediate difference in our lives and in the people around us. Oh, that we could be like this all year long. That's great. You know, I don't know how many of you read emails when I send them to you. (laughs) Oh, good. Thanks. (laughs) Anyway, oh, boy, that was a negative comment. I'm going to have to put a dollar in. (laughs) Anyway, uh, yeah. I really believe that, you know, what I said, and I'm going to just repeat it, that I used to be a Southern California girl, and I used to have a surfer for a boyfriend. And so I used to go to Newport Beach often to watch the guys surf. And I love to body surf. And to body surf, you know, you have this position. You're like this, but you're looking. And as soon as you think the big one's coming, you start swimming as fast as you can, paddling as fast as you can, as hard as you can, so you can catch the wave. And then there's a point where it doesn't matter. You've caught the wave, and you just go to the shore. Okay? Or you could do this. It comes to the big one. You're like, oh, no. And you you know, go under and hope it doesn't grab you and throw you on the shore, all not knowing where you are at the time. And so in this fast, the way I see it is that we are working as hard as we can to catch the wave. But at some point, the wave's going to grab us and take us all the way in. So if you haven't been <clears throat> faithfully going for abstaining from negativity during these 40 days, do it. Because God wants to break that negativity off of our life to make more space for his holy spirit to fill us so okay so if we were going to put the bible into one word all 1544 pages of my bible which includes the concordance the cross references the footnotes the atlases what would that one word be christ it was close christ love that's good Now, people who look at the Old Testament sometimes say to me, how do I make sense of all the things that happened to the Jewish people in the Old Testament? The sacrifices, the prophecies, all those different characters running in and out of the pages of the Old Testament. How do I pull it all together? One word, Christ. Jesus said after he had risen from the dead that the meaning of the whole Old Testament was himself. Luke chapter 24, 27. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he, exclaimed to th- he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And then Paul echoes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, when he says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. They have their fulfillment, their yes, their amen in Jesus Christ. Some theologians refer to this as Christocentric, which means the central viewpoint of the Bible must be and is Christ. Now, I'm going to demonstrate this for you in a moment by just making some quick shots of the Old Testament. Okay, if we look at um, right at the beginning, Adam, he was the first man of the human race. He disobeyed God, and that affected humanity. Every man, every woman, every child has been affected for all time by the first Adam that sinned. Then Jesus Christ, who is the last Adam, through his obedience has affected the whole new race of people who have come to faith in Christ for all time. 
Now, just as Adam's disobedience brought about the fall and death, Jesus' obedience has brought salvation and eternal life to those who believe. Now, we look at the promises given to Abraham in the book of Genesis. The ram that was caught in the thicket in Genesis 22 is the substitute sacrifice of Isaiah, his son. Isaac, excuse me, his son. That is a picture of Christ. The whole life of Joseph in the Old Testament is a picture of the rejection of Christ by his brothers. Joseph was thrown into a pit, then he was brought out, eventually put at the right hand of the ruler of the land, and at the second coming of his brothers, Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. And what they mean meant for harm, God used to save a nation, just like Christ. The Passover lamb in the book of Exodus is a picture of Christ, where that blood covers us and protects us from the destroyer. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus, and he is the one who bears the curse of disobedience to the law from the book of Deuteronomy, and he is the one greater than Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Jesus Christ is the true son of David. He is the one to whom all the prophecies point. The picture that I get of the Old Testament is as if if each of the prophets who had their perspective and had their word for that time had a stick. And they put that stick in the Niagara River. And they felt like that was it. And suddenly all those sticks came all together, rushing together, were overwhelmed and taken by the Niagara Falls, which is Christ. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Now, I'm going to use a few prepositions to make my point and to make it a little bit clearer. Now, you probably remember what a preposition is from your English class. Okay, it's words like through, for, in, under, between, by, on, for, with, those kinds of words. They're the connecting words. And Christ is the one that draws all things together. He is the connection between all things. Think about it. It is through Christ that God makes himself known to us through Christ. Revelation comes through Christ. Hebrews 1 says this. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now you say, how can I know God? Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. We know God by looking at Christ. Do you want to know if God loves us? Look at Christ. God, Christ loves us, so God loves us. Will God heal us? Look at Christ. Christ heals, so God will heal us. All we want to see about God or understand about God or hear or know about God can be revealed through Christ. And not only does revelation come through Christ, but redemption comes through Christ. Now, how can a man or woman or child get to God? Through Christ. And Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You want to approach God, you must get to God through Christ. And the Apostle Paul says, There is one God and only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's through Christ that we come to God. It's through his blood shed on the cross 
the, he opens the way to God. Now I'm going to change the preposition from through to for. This way we can see what is the basic motivation of our Christian living. It's all done for Christ. This single thing, through Christ, for Christ. So many of us will shake our heads and wonder why people will leave their comfortable homes, their families, their jobs, in order to go off to the mission field. Some far away place where maybe the food is strange or yucky and the water is contaminated, people get sick, there's little money to help, and you wonder why they would go to the obscure part of the world. You may say, why would anybody leave America? We have clean food, clean water, all the props, all the pleasures, all the entertainment, all the stuff. Why would anybody leave that behind and go off somewhere? Because that person understands the single thing. For Christ, I'll leave. Now, in 2006, there was a popular movie that came out. It was called The End of the Spear, which is the story of a martyrdom of Jim Elliott and four men that went with him. They were slaughtered by the Alka Indians, who were a ferocious Indian tribe on the Amazon River. These men went there to witness, to tell the folks about Jesus. What an incredible waste. Why would five young men go deep into the bush to explain the message of redemption through Christ to these Indians that didn't even care? They could have had successful careers. They could have risen in the corporate world, maybe become a doctor. They were intelligent men. They could have nice yards and spent their Saturdays raking their leaves. Why would anybody do that? Now, Jim Elliott, who was one of the martyrs, the most famous of the five, was 24 when he was killed. And he has a famous quote. He's written several books before he even left. Amazing man. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, life, to gain what he cannot lose, eternal life, for Christ. That is the motive for doing anything. Why shouldn't you keep all your money to yourself? Why should you give to the church of Christ? Why take your excess and give it away instead of consuming every single dime for more and more stuff? Why give to world vision? Why give to the poor? Why do anything that is not centered around your own personal needs? For Christ. At one time, Randy and I had thought that we were going to go um, on the mission field for long range, not just one year. And so we're looking at different mission organizations. And one of the organizations we looked at was Wycliffe Bible Translators. And their main objective was to translate the Bible in every tongue, dialect, and language. And um, they did this because they believed that they were, quote, engaging in nothing less than attempting to bring about the end of history. Talk about a single focus. To work as something to bring the end of history not through bombs but by preaching and translating the word of God because Jesus said that this gospel would have to be preached to all nations and then the end would come so Wycliffe Bible Translator exists to quicken that return of Christ that is their motive for Christ's sake now in the fine news you're going to notice and Melissa mentioned it um, earlier that in January we're going to have an informational meeting about those who might be interested in going on a short-term mission to Costa Rica. Why do this? Why send 19, 20 people raising $15,000 to go to a village to play with kids? 
to teach moms how to make jewelry, to jump rope, and to work through a translator and talk about Jesus for Christ. You know, it's not just the big things that we do for Christ that matters. Sometimes we get tested in little things. Will you be the first to talk after a big fight? Will you be honest about reporting all of your income? Will you be careful regarding your expenses on the company's credit card? Will you get out of bed and get the baby and stop pretending you're asleep? Little choices of servanthood. Why? When you're tired and it's convenient. Why? For Christ. And what is it that we attempt to do with our lives? The goal is, another preposition, to look like Christ. Through Christ, for Christ, like Christ. We want to be like him, live like him, pray like him, speak like him, love like him. That's what he wants uh, for us, this church. People who look like Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. For me to live is Christ. Now I could go on to some other prepositions. We live in Christ. We build our lives on Christ. It is under Christ our Lord, unto Christ that we move. Christ is the one thing. Now, I want to break this little phrase a little bit more. Not only for me to live is Christ, but for me to live, to really live, not just to survive or just get by or hydroplane over the surface of life, but to really, really live in the fullness of Christ. Sometimes it feels like I hear myself say, well, if I can just survive this week, I'll be okay. Or just this day. Or if you're a mother of toddlers, just this hour. Yes, we can learn, we can lean toward being a short-term society. We can become all about survival. Now, if you go to the bookstore, there's a lot of popular books right now, How to Survive a Bad Marriage, Ten Steps to Parental Survival. Now, that's a lofty goal. My goal is to get my kids through their teenage years and for Randy and I to still be living when they move out of the house. (laughs) Paul says, that is not my goal. My goal is to live with all that that means. There's so many different kinds of ways that people try to find life, real satisfaction or fulfillment. The hedonist philosophy is, well, you experience everything you can in life. The best places, the best hotels, the best room service, the best food. Every experience should be the best. The goal of life is to travel the world and to experience the very best fabrics on your body. And to live in the very best house with the very best kitchen, with the newest electronic devices, camera, iPod, HD screen, on and on it goes. Others have adopted the cynical approach to life. It's all empty. It's all meaningless. It's a big con game. Christianity in every church is just a con, which sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Still, there are others who are a little bit more religious And they believe that life is found in a lot of religious activities. More and more and more. Running more and more and more and more. Doing more and more activities. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. For Christ. Or the church. Or religious stuff. And if we have that kind of motivation, we're going to end up feeling very empty. Paul says, you don't get it. An abundant, full, rich, blessing, satisfying, deep, meaningful, purpose life is only found in Christ. Not a bunch of activities, not a bunch of stuff, 
not a bunch of satisfying my body. All of that ends up dead and empty. For me to live, really live, is Christ. So we need to connect between life and Christ like the Apostle John did. If you read the Gospel of John, 36 times John makes a connection between Christ and life. Very first beginning verses of the Gospel of John, he says, In him was life. And in John 17, he says, This is life eternal, to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, who now ascends. You want life in the midst of depression. You want life in the midst of your family problems. You want life in the midst of your illnesses, real living. You want life in the middle of pressing circumstances where it feels like nothing is going right. So you're not traveling around the world. You're not drinking the finest wine, but you still can have life. And the Bible says you can find fulfillment or life in Christ. There is life to be had in the king. You don't have to graph for it in the world. The reason you find life is in Christ is because Jesus said in John 5, For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted it to the Son to have life in himself. Christ is the very definition of life. And apart from Christ, there is no life, a bunch of stuff, but ultimately emptiness, no life. And in, pa- in fact, later on, uh, one of the preachers will be preaching on Philippians 3, and I don't want to grab their sermon, but Paul says this, apart from Christ, is all just done. That's another word for some really bad words, that four-letter words we don't say. It's all worthless. It's garbage. If you don't have a deep, growing, intimate relationship with Christ, you really don't have much life. Not much satisfaction or ultimate fulfillment. You know, this is not very obvious when you're young. If you are young and you take two young people, one who is following after Christ and one who doesn't really care about Christ, you watch them as they're young, and really it's hard to tell the difference. They both seem to be living and enjoying life. They both seem to be happy. But if you were to follow those two lives and check out the Christ-less person, you would find that their life gets more and more empty. But if you're to follow the one who has followed after Christ, who's growing in Christ, and continue to seek him and draw near to him, you would see that their life is becoming more and more fulfilling. If you want life, you will find it in Christ. And so we must not only follow Christ, but we must pursue obedience. And this is what the fast is all about. It's about obedience, obedience to God's word, abstaining from things that are negative that he tells us already to stop doing. We're in this fast, this 40-day fast of abstaining from some really negative things. And I'm committed to this, and I want you each to consider, if you haven't jumped on, jump on. I know it's hard to break old habits, behavior that is negative and sinful. I know that. It's not been easy for me. I think I've, I just upped my ante, and I think I'm at to like $11 but I'm going to get healed. I know that. So if you're being tempted to say something negative about a person, and you know it's gossip, and you know it's going to tear them down, if you're being faced to, to lie, because it's easier for you to lie, if you're being faced to curse, or to not forgive somebody, 
or if you're being faced with a number of negative behavior, complaining, grumbling, envy, anger, depression, unforgiveness, and over the course of the day you might say, why should I obey in this instance? Just simple duty because you ought to, because it's right to obey? Although those things are true, you ought to obey and it is right. But really, you need to understand that one of the reasons why you ought to obey is because obedience leads to life. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 and 20, this is what Moses tells the people when he brings the commandment to them. This day, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. When you obey God in the face of temptation, what you are doing is choosing life. Now, on the other hand, every time you decide to sin, you are choosing death. So as we walk through these 40 days of fasting and praying, don't you see that God is inviting us to life? By fasting and abstaining from negativity, real life, he doesn't want us to continue to live in depression, frustration, offense, anger, critical, cynical, suspicious spirit. He wants to give us love and hope and faith and thankfulness and joyfulness and purpose. The world can promise us that life will be fun if we sin. Do what feels good. But haven't you noticed that when you've done that, that you feel apart from God? Disobedience makes us feel dead inside. It cuts us off. Sometimes we feel numb and callous. We find it hard to love and definitely hard to pray. We feel exhausted, empty, depressed. And so sometimes we spend more of our energy trying to reserve our energy or protecting it from giving ourselves to God when we're in this place. Now finally, I want to focus on a few couple of words in Paul's statement We talked about Christ being the one thing. We talked about really living. And now I want to focus on the first few words of the phrase, for me. It's absolutely no good to know this stuff and not walk it out. Oh yeah, Christ is supposed to be the center. He's the one thing. These words must be personally applied if they're going to have any value. For me to live is Christ. Now, it's easy for us to maintain the old Roman Catholic thought that there are some really awesome, great saints, and then there's the rest of us. You know, it's one thing for Mother Teresa to say she lived for Christ, but me, I have other commitments. I've got family, work, mortgage payments. Well, I understand that's true for Paul. I mean, after all, he did have a pretty significant encounter with God. I mean, if I had something like that, maybe I would also live for Christ. You need to let go of that lie. It's just a plain lie. There is no great distinction in God's eyes. You are all great people in God's eyes. He died for you, didn't he? That makes you great. So what was true of Paul and true of Mother Teresa should be true for me and for you. And Christianity means nothing, absolutely nothing, unless we personally apply it if i can't put in front of that line for me then it's just a philosophy as christians we have to be able to say this is my goal 
to be able to say, for me to live is Christ. Christ is that personal. I want him to be first this year. I want Christ to be there first for the next 40 years. See, what saves a person is not what they believe when they say they believe Jesus died for the world. It's wonderful to believe that Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sins. But you must understand that until we say Jesus died for me and believe it, I'm going to miss heaven by a trillion light years. And from this, I just need to say for you, for me, is life. Christianity has never been a spectator spectator sport. It's not just for nice people. He invites all of us, the mean, the, the mad, the ugly, the bad. He invites us to be his, the one thing. Now, how do we measure if we're living the for me true in our lives? I want to just send you out a few gauges by which to do it. This is how I do it for me. Well, you measure the same way you measure anything. I would measure this kind of statement against myself by first asking, what am I doing with my excess? There's a certain amount of time that's given to work, a certain amount of time for sleep, a certain amount of time that's excess. Where's my excess time going? Is it drawn to Christ? What do I do with my excess dollars? Do they all get consumed on me? You say, for me to live as Christ means that my excess ought to be going, at least in part, to the cause of Christ in world missions, to Christ's church, to the poor. I would also measure by looking at how I look at the future. What are my plans? What am I hoping for? What do I'm working towards? Is it strictly a career plan? Or house decorating? Or do you say what I really want for my future is to have this phrase true in me? I want to grow to be able to say, for me to live is Christ. Okay, let's pray. Lord, um, I thank you for opportunities to be built up and to get our bearings back. Because all week long, there's a lot of pulls to pull us from our bearings, which is you, Christ Jesus. And Lord, just sense that um, tonight there may be some that are feeling some conviction. I know I felt a lot of conviction while I was preparing this sermon. And I thank you that you were willing to work on me before coming. And so, Lord, I want to make an opportunity for those who are feeling conviction that they have fallen short with their excess money, with their excess time, with their future plans, that they have somehow cut you off or shortchanged you, Jesus, from being first. And so, Lord, I, I know that you have been doing such a work in us and really drawing us closer to you, and you really want us to get this during the fast, that the one thing is you. So if any of you have felt any kind of conviction during this talk, I want you to stand where you are. You don't need to come forward, just stand. Because God wants to, yes, amen, on you. Thank you, Holy Spirit. So just extend your hands out to him. And those of you around your friends, extend your hands to them. Because the Holy Spirit is working on them.
And Lord, um, I just thank you for your Holy Spirit that does never condemns, but always convicts. It's your kindness, Lord, that convicts us of sin. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so, Holy Spirit, I thank you for these um, brothers and sisters who have stood and feel a sense of sadness for not giving you their access and not allowing you to be their first. And I pray, Lord, that you would now lift the shame and the guilt. Father, for whatever ways that they have sought satisfaction and fulfillment, that you would say, it's done, it's finished. And that you would show them new ways, Lord, of running after you out of love, Lord. And Father, thank you that today they are choosing to be obedient. And they are choosing to have life. And to have life fully in you, Christ Jesus. Empower them, Father, to do great works. Because, Father, you promised that we would do greater works than your son Jesus did. So empower these, Father, who have stood to do great works in your name. Amen. You guys can be seated. Okay. Now, for the rest of us, if you are feeling like you are needing some support and prayer for what's going on in your life, remember, when you come to church, we make those who are comfortable uncomfortable and those who are uncomfortable comforted. So maybe you're one of those that needs some comfort because you're in an uncomfortable situation. I'd like to invite you to come forward for prayer, and there will be folks here. In fact, those who stood up and said yes to Christ, you guys can come forward to pray for them. Yeah, that would be good. So uh, those of you who need some prayer and comforting, come on up. And after we do that, uh, we are going to walk over to a room. Anybody who wants to do that, we're going to walk to another room that they are saying is available to us to possibly use. And what's cool about this other room is that we could literally unpack our stuff and leave it there. And not have to unpack and repack and unpack and repack. And we could decorate it. It doesn't have to look as dark. Um, And we could maybe even put our name somewhere. I don't know. So um, if you'd like to hang out to see that, we have made no decision. This opportunity just came to us um, via email today. So we are going to look at it and find out the details. I'm sure it means more money. But we'll see. So come forward and get prayer because that's priority. And then you're going to see us move over to that room. Randy will lead us. Okay. There's a lot of doors by the women's bathroom. I I would feel uncomfortable opening doors. So maybe harvest time. Okay. So that's if you need to leave right away, I guess. Is there anybody in there? Okay. Prayer. Let's do prayer priority first. Come up and get prayer. And then if you need to leave or you want to go see that with the rest of us, we'll go there. Okay? Bless you. Love you.